Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. This is the final episode of our series on the Australian federal election, and I'll be wrapping up the results with William Bowe from the Poll Bludger. Hello, William. Hello, Ben. So uh, all of the races for the House of Representatives have now been called, with Labor winning a narrow majority with 77 seats, alongside 58 coalition, four Greens and 10 independents. We'll come back to the House, but there are still a handful of seats still undecided in the Senate, with the most attention focused on the race between Pauline Hanson and the Liberal National Party's Amanda Stoker for the last seat in Queensland. William, how do you think that race is going? Well, my view is that Pauline Hanson will win. I've done a pretty extensive analysis on this based on how preferences flowed in 2019. This is from an examination of the ballot paper data. The AEC publishes the full preference data from every single ballot paper. So I have gone through and I have looked at every minor party's uh, preference flow, how they ended up flowing, where they will end up flowing between uh Amanda Stoker and Pauline Hanson. Broadly speaking, to cut a long story short, One Nation get more preferences, particularly from right-wing minor parties, of which there are a great many in play in Queensland, than the LNP do. So while they start pretty much level after the, you know, Amanda Stoker has got the LNP surplus after their second candidate is elected, that leaves her off the bat with about the same amount of the vote as Pauline Hanson. But last time, Pauline Hanson did solidly better on preferences, and I will be surprised if that's not the case again this time. But she's not doing as well as One Nation did last time, right? There was a swing against them. That is the case. One Nation ran in every lower house seat this time, which I don't imagine they've done since 2001 at least. And, uh, you know, during the course of their recent resurgence, they haven't been. So that's been a little bit of a difficulty in getting a handle on exactly how popular One Nation are. The National House of Representatives vote, which is what pollsters are trying to track, you know, that's a difficulty for them. But for the Senate, you know, you can look at the Senate to see how they've been tracking nationally. So while they, their national vote on the metric that most people look at, which is the House of Reps vote, has increased, there was actually a drop in their support. You know, electorate by electorate, where they ran both times, their vote tended to be lower. And uh, yes, their, their Senate vote was a bit lower this time. They, they didn't fall off a cliff. But they, uh, you know, they're not advancing onwards and upwards. There's uh, an ever-increasing amount of competition, I guess, for that right-wing vote. And, uh, yeah, they were a little off this time. And uh, I think Pauline Hanson's going to win less comfortably than Malcolm Roberts did in 2019. And there are two other seats that appear to be at least potentially in play. Uh, it looks like the Liberal Party is in a strong position to win that third seat in South Australia, which uh, early on it looked like One Nation was going to win. Yeah, it's my view that the Liberal Party are on track to actually win third seats in South Australia and uh, also in Victoria, the coalition, I mean, um, which looked maybe a little bit dubious at first. Uh, it, we saw very strong results in particular for legalised cannabis across the board, which was one of the interesting aspects of the Senate count. Uh, to the extent that at first it looked conceivable, they might sneak through somewhere, but I think that's fallen away. Uh, as you say, yeah, they are on track for three seats in South Australia, which is a surprise if you were expecting more from Nick Xenophon, as I think most people were. Um, I, I, I think if you'd asked me before the election, I'd have thought that the result in South Australia would have been that there would only be two seats for the Liberal Party because he would win one of them. Uh, Labor would win two and Greens would win one, as is indeed happened. 
But uh, he was rather a flop there. So, uh, you know, there have been a couple of silver linings for the Liberal Party in the Senate, even though, uh, you know, it, it's not a great for the result for them in either house overall. And the other race that appears to be in play is in Victoria, where early on it looked like the United Australia candidate was leading. Uh, and now uh, Greg Mirabella, the third coalition candidate, a Liberal senator, has narrowly taken the lead on primary votes. What do you think is happening there? Um, in, in Victoria, I, I, I think that the, the Liberal Party are going to win a third seat there as well. That was the strongest hope for the United Australia Party was Victoria. Uh, I don't think Clive Palmer was ever really a chance. I, I think that if there was going to be a, a seat out on the right there, it was always going to be Pauline Hanson that was going to win it in Queensland. Victoria, however, has been uh, ground zero for the backlash over COVID and lockdowns and uh, etc. So that was their strongest hope. Uh, they didn't do spectacularly well in Victoria. Their primary vote from memory went from about 2.5% to 4%, which, you know, isn't bad, but it's not, you know, the, the kind of increase that some of the more apocalyptic accounts of what was going on in Victoria were suggesting. And uh, I don't think it's enough to put them in contention for that last Senate seat. I think at the final stages of the count, it will come down to Greg Mirabella versus the United Australia Party candidate. I think preferences are going to split pretty evenly between Greg Mirabella and the UAP, and I think Mirabella starts pretty solidly ahead. I don't see any combination of preference cut-ups at any point in the count where they can somehow sneak through. So, uh, yeah, I, I think if there is a seat still in doubt, it's Queensland. Uh, Victoria, I, I'm pretty sure that Greg Mirabella will win that seat. Right. So there's three races there where we're talking Liberal versus Minor Right, but two of them you're pretty confident about the Liberal, and the last one, Hanson, is leading. And that adds up to a Senate where we've got Labor on 26, Greens on 12, so that's half. Then the kind of feasible uh, partners to get to 39 are like David Pocock and uh, the two Jackie Lambie Network senators. That brings you to 41. And then it looks likely you'll have Hanson and Roberts. That's 43. And then that leaves 33 other senators for the coalition. Um, so pretty small right-wing crossbench and kind of does reflect a bit. We've seen a bit of a dwindling of the minor crossbench for the minor right, but the Greens are kind of big enough now that they actually outperform their proportion of the vote in the Senate, which I find interesting. Like they they will hold, if you exclude the territory senators who kind of have a different electoral method, the Greens now hold one-sixth of all seats, but they have not polled anything close to one-sixth of the vote, which would be about 17%. So um, they're actually now at a point with the electoral system where they're overperforming. We're seeing the... Uh... The, the full effect now of the new electoral system, you know, when we're not having tiny micro parties flick seats off preference flows. So to that extent, it's doing its job. Um, it's the, the Senate will always, you know, distort things a little bit. You know, if you're dividing things up into six seats, it's, as they say, low magnitude proportional representation. It um, doesn't um always give you a you know precisely proportional result not uh, as you say i think the greens are in a pretty good place where you know that they are you know two elections in a row they've won seats in every state and uh i i think that that will i hesitate to say the norm for them i dare say they will have the odd week election where they'll drop a few seats but uh you know i, I think that they have been beneficiaries out of the new system and uh just just sort of 
more broadly speaking, I think Labor will be very happy with the result. I think Labor will be delighted that they'll be able to get legislation passed with the support of the Greens and a David Pocock they or, or a Jackie Lambie. Uh, that is a better outcome for them than perhaps they would have envisioned. Three seats for Labor in Western Australia was, uh, you know, a really uh, important result for them. That uh, which they've never accomplished before, given that there's also a Greens senator in WA. So this is the first four left to right result that there has ever been in Western Australia. It's the first time Labor have ever won three seats at a six-seat half-senate election in Western Australia. And, you know, one outcome like that can, you know, be very important in tilting the entire balance of the Senate, which of its nature is very finely balanced between left and right. Who knows how long David Pocock will hold on to his seat. Uh, I think probably if things equalise a bit, that will, he will have trouble there. And he only has a three-year term. But three years from now, the right will again be defending four Senate seats in Queensland. And if that they drop back to three there and they lose that fourth seat to Labor, um, and thus giving Labor two senators in Queensland and one Green, that would then give Labor and the Greens between them a total Senate majority if the Labor and the Greens are able to keep their 3-3 splits in every other state. So it seems quite plausible that they've set themselves up, as long as this term isn't a total disaster for the Albanese government, they've set themselves up not just to win a second term in the House, but to also have kind of six years of a left-wing Senate. Um, so that's quite remarkable, and it's worth comparing that to when Kevin Rudd was elected, his first, excluding the first few months where he still had the Senate elected in 2004, um, his first Senate had, uh, the numbers were such that he needed the Greens, Nick Xenophon and Stephen Fielding, a very right-wing senator who would agree with the Greens on very little. They would all need to line up in order to pass legislation, which, I mean, meant that they, they had a lot less options in the Senate. So in that regard, the Albanese government is in a much stronger position. Yes, because, you know, John Howard had a pretty emphatic win in 2004. You know, you wouldn't call it a landslide, but it was a very solid win. Uh, whereas, you know, for all the hype about Morrison's miracle, uh, 2019 was, you know, a, a pretty close election. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of the, the legacy of the election before the election that brought Labor to power. And uh, partly also the electoral system, uh, you know, Steve Fielding, I don't think would be elected today. That actually was a, a, a slightly distorting result in 2004 when he did win because he sort of won on left preferences. Yeah. It, it gave you, I think, a four right, two left result in Victoria, which, you know, Victoria would never naturally produce. So, uh, yeah, there were a, a, a couple of, from a left perspective, uh, unfortuitous results in 2004 that carried over to the first term of the Rudd government and, you know, may have had an enormous impact in the long run on the political fortunes of the Rudd government that it was dealing with that Senate uh, and, you know, everything that ended up happening with uh, emissions reductions and, and all, all the, the, the difficulties that ensued for the Rudd government. Uh, those sorts of difficulties will be easier to avoid for Albanese. And uh, that, that, that could, you know, potentially uh, be of, of great and long-reaching significance. Let's talk about those last couple of House seats because you, you would have been closely following those late counts and they've all been resolved by this point. We were recording on the Monday, two weeks after the election. Um, what, like, let's pick one. What was the seat that you found the most fascinating in those final rounds of the count? 
Uh, I guess the answer in the final rounds is, you know, it's, it's, it's simply the, the closest. Gilmore, obviously, you know, was the the one that has come down to the, to the smallest amount and uh, was the one that was in doubt for the longest time. It would be good if you had a clearer idea where absent votes were coming from because uh, there was, uh, I'm pretty sure it was in Gilmore that the first batch of absent votes really changed the game. With absent votes, they tend to be coming from just over the boundary. So they're, they're coming from a particular place. Each batch comes from a particular place and that's a particular identity. So whereas you can often, you know, get a reasonable read on what postal votes are going to do from one batch to the next, uh, absent votes are a lucky dip. So, uh, you know, that was, uh, I think, the, the one moment in the count where, you know, I thought, well, okay, this, is, this has changed my perception of how this race is going. Before that point, I probably thought that Andrew Constance was going to make it. And from that point, I didn't. The, the other wild card in, in the actual counting process was the uh, COVID votes. Because you had absolutely no idea how what they were going to do or even how many of them there were. So, you know, with with everything else, you could look at historic form and see how the outstanding votes were likely to behave. But that was a sort of wild card in the mix. Uh, the way they behaved sort of is, I suppose, how I would have thought they would have behaved, even though I didn't really know, which is that they did have a leftward lean. Um, I think that, uh, you know, people on the right of politics who come down with COVID are sort of less inclined to obey the rules about it, you know, less inclined to admit, you know, to, to you know, do the public spirited thing, I suppose, and, you know, come forth with the fact that they've been diagnosed or to get tested. And as a result, you know, that, that there's this sort of, uh, particularly in America, there's a glaring distinction in the way between people and the left and the right behave in relation to COVID. It's not as severe in Australia, but it was there. So uh, the, the, the COVID votes tended to be stronger for Labor and the Greens. So that was a little bit helpful to them in Lake County. And that's on my list as something to do um, once we get a little bit more data is looking at the trends within the vote types, you know, how postal votes and pre-poll votes compared to election day, et cetera. So that COVID vote will be interesting to look at. And one day I'm going to look at, I keep telling myself this, um, how postal votes behave from early in the counting process to the end. Do those later arriving postal votes, which I which must be coming from overseas, behave differently from the batch that's counted immediately after you know, on I think they were counting postal votes on Saturday, Sunday after the polling day and uh you know they're, they're coming from different sources they behave differently uh it I don't have a very clear sense of how that works uh it did seem to me that uh postal votes became sort of more friendly to Labor as, as, the, as the camp progressed. There were a few exceptions. I imagine that's going to be what I'll find, that the first batches of postal votes are, you know, your classic postal voter who is older and more conservative. And uh, later in the postal voting process, you're getting people who are doing postal votes because of the specific situation that they're in, which very often involves them being overseas. That would be very interesting to see. I mean, let's talk briefly about these three-corner contests because the Greens ended up winning three seats in Queensland, all in the dynamic where Labor came third and the Greens were elected on Labor preferences. Richmond and McNamara looked like there was a chance the same thing would happen and in the end. Um, I mean, did the Greens come third in McNamara in the end? I know Labor came in the top two, and that was kind of the key thing that we cared about. But 
Did the Greens end up coming third in those two seats, Richmond and McNamara? Uh, McNamara was insanely close, but yes, I'm pretty sure that the dynamic was that. Um, actually, I've got the numbers here. Yes, uh, the Greens ended up on, or, or at the sort of most recent point where they updated that three candidate preferred count they were doing. The Greens were on 32.9%, Liberal were on 33.6%, Labor were on 33.5%. So each of them, you know, insanely close to a third, but the Greens just below dropping out and electing Labor. So that was the dynamic in McNamara. In Richmond, I believe it was the Nationals who finished third. Right, right. And uh, their preferences and will end up electing Labor. There's a couple of stories that are really interesting from this. One is uh, the use of three candidate preferred counts because traditionally we have these two candidate preferred counts which are tremendously helpful in deciding close races and knowing who's going to win before the final count is conducted. Um, Has the ADC ever done those before? Because they did them in Brisbane and McNamara and they kind of sped up the calling of those results because we reached a point where we could tell who was going to come third and thus who was going to win. Now, I'm pretty sure that they haven't. And their results reporting system isn't set up to accommodate them. They were sort of publishing them off to the side, so to speak. And I don't think it will ever be practical for them to be replacing two candidate preferred counts on the night with three candidate preferred counts. I could be wrong about that, but I doubt it. I think, you know, this is always going to be have to be an ad hoc thing that they do when this situation arises. But I, I think probably we will see this situation arise increasingly in future. You know, uh, I, I, the, the seats in which they happened, uh, there, there's no reason to believe similar results aren't going to happen there next time. You've got that whole panoply of seats. And I, I, it's probably peculiar to the, or perhaps it isn't, you know, say you've got a teal seat where the same dynamic emerges. In the teal seats, though, I think, with the exception of North Sydney, it's go- always going to be the case that Labor will drop out. So maybe in North Sydney, you could get a situation where a, a, a Teal, a Liberal and a Labor are sort of butting heads against each other and it all depends on whichever of the three drops out. But certainly all of those Greens contests, um, you know, the, 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 the three in Brisbane, it could happen again in Richmond, it could happen again in McNamara. Uh, potentially in other seats in 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 a Sydney. So yeah, I, I, I suspect that we haven't seen the last of these three candidate counts. But yeah, it, it will always have to be an ad hoc thing that the AEC are doing to add clarity in the week after the election. Maybe they'll just have a standard procedure in the future, and they'll call on that procedure if it looks like it's necessary. You know, and maybe it'll happen a little bit quicker than it happened this time, if that's the case. Um, because we've seen a bunch of these in the past. We've seen them in Balmain in 2011 when Jamie Parker was first elected. Uh, Pran, it's happened twice. Happened in Ballina in 2015 where the Nationals came second. Did a state electoral commission ever do one of these three candidate counts? I haven't seen one. In the case of Balmain in 2011, uh, we had to wait for, I was scrutineering that count, we had to wait for the actual distribution of all the minor party preferences, at which point, we knew who to come second and the Labor scrutineers conceded defeat and shook hands and congratulated the Greens people on victory and that was the end of the process, but it happened quite late. Um, and it's going to keep coming up because it's it's the easiest path for the Greens to win seats now as long as the Coalition is preferencing Labor. 
you know, you mentioned in Sydney, but in Sydney and Grainler, they're already basically, even though their vote is a long way behind Labor, they're already basically at the point where they're overtaking the Liberal Party. Um, for them to win, part of the reason they did so well in Brisbane is the coalition vote's just a bit higher in inner city Brisbane than it is in, inner, say, the inner north of Melbourne or, um, you know, the inner city of Sydney. And so if the Liberal vote is, is too low and you overtake the Liberals without overtaking Labor... Liberal preferences just elect Labor anyway. So I don't think this strategy works in Sydney or Grainler. They just have to build up build up and up and up to a much higher primary vote, which is much more difficult. could happen, but it requires much more of a change. Um, whereas, you know, these seats we talk about, McNamara, Richmond, and those inner Brisbane seats all are a little bit more conservative than, uh, you know, Cooper, Will, Sydney, Grainler, and that's why it's happening there. Yeah, but if you've got the Greens winning Ryan then it, potentially some of the seats that were won by Teals could be winnable for the Greens. Although now that the Teals are there, I'm not sure. Yeah, but, you know, it's worth thinking about. You know, it's I think the ambit of the Greens has, has increased. You know, my, my feeling always was that the next seats the Greens would be winning would be Sydney and Grindler when the sitting Labor members moved on. But, uh, you know, they've proved me wrong there. They have shown that, you know, the that real uh, critical mass that they've reached in inner cities, you know, even though, you know, the aggregate Greens vote is not, you know, rocketing upwards, in that they're inner city heartland, you know, that, that they really are becoming, you know, a, a localised major party. Although we should clarify, this was a record vote for the Greens at this election. So it wasn't dramatically higher. It certainly wasn't four times as high as the number of lower house seats um, has proven to be or um, a third higher as the Senate count was, but it was a record. Yeah, 12.2%, which I guess broke 2010, which I was 11 point something, I recall. It's not a, a paradigm changer. The, the, the Greens vote did sort of seem to be stuck there for a long time. It, I think, you know, after they'd the sort of Australian Democrats had finished becoming extinct. There was a a sense at that time that the, the Greens were going to sort of continue onwards and upwards, which didn't really happen. But uh, on this occasion, at least, you know, that th- they have found extra support. I wonder sometimes a little bit about the two-party preferred as a statistic because we focus on it a lot. It's the kind of the heart of polling. It's the number we all look at. Um, and it is still a useful statistical tool. I used it for a lot of my analysis before the election was looking at two-party preferred figures. But we have this increasing number of seats where the two-party preferred is not the, you know, it's not a Labor versus coalition contest. And so we only have um, two PP counts for about five-sixths of the seats. And so we're waiting for those two-party preferred numbers to come in. But I'm still thinking they will be useful to see because they do... In a sense, they kind of tell us, you know, when it boils down to Albanese or Morrison, who do you think should be the prime minister in a sense? Like that is a, uh, I know it doesn't quite say that, but it's the closest we get to that. It sort of tells us, I could imagine in the future, it becomes a useful metric. If we have hung parliaments with a large crossbench, it becomes a useful metric of, you know, who ultimately would the people prefer to lead a government, even if it was a minority government. But I mean, we probably won't have final 2PP figures when such a governmental formation process is happening. But where do you think the 2PP is going to end up landing? Uh, my projection, and it's very close to Anthony Green, so I'm confident about this, is 51.9% Labor. 
And uh, that is, uh, it, it's, there was a lot of sort of talk before the election that, oh, historically, you only come to power in a landslide. Whenever the change of government, it's a big seismic shift election, as if this was some sort of iron law. I just thought it was, you know, a, a basically a coincidence that no close election had ever been won by the challenger rather than the incumbent. In two-party preferred terms, it's not that close a result. It's, um, I think Kevin Rudd got 52.7. He did, he did. And Howard got 52.7 in the election before, and Abbott got 53.5 in 2013. With change of government elections, it was, you know, this is the narrowest two-party preferred for a change of government election. Oh, going, you know, since pre-World War II. I, I don't know how far pre-World War II, but uh, as I said, I, I, I do think that was just, just probably a coincidence. Um, so it, it's it's a pretty solid win, you know, 52-48. This wasn't a cliffhanger. Um, it may have appeared that way earlier on the night. Uh, even, even on the night, it was quickly apparent that at a bare minimum, we were looking at a Labor minority government. The surprise came later on when Labor hauled in four seats in Western Australia. That was uh, what tipped them over the edge to majority government. And in terms of how the polls went, I mean, uh, Resolve last poll was 51.2. News poll and Ipsos had 53. Essential was 48 to 46, which is... Uh, 51.1. So they, they all performed respectably, like none of them hit it perfectly on the mark. A couple of the pollsters were about a point under or a point over. Um, that seems like a pretty good result, really. There was a tendency to overstate the Labor primary vote. Um, Resolve Strategic was the only pollster who didn't do that. But uh, I think this sort of goes back to that thing where, you know, if Nate Silver was looking over our shoulder, he'd say, what are you complaining about? This is a very good result by the pollsters. And if you think otherwise, then you don't understand the imprecision of polling. You Australians are spoilt by having such accurate polling. Yeah. Yes, you know, well, you know, Nate, Nate Silver wrote an article after 2019 essentially calling Anthony Green an idiot because he didn't understand that polling wasn't that accurate. But that was because he didn't have a, a clear sense of exactly how accurate polling in Australia had been for a very long time. And that there was a reasonable apprehension in Australia that polls aren't going to be 5% off the mark like they can be in Britain or America. And, you know, even in the context of our 2019 polling failure, you know, uh, it wasn't that bad by international standards, which was Nate Silver's point. And by international standards, this is a very good result. It's just that by the standards of pre-2019 opinion polling performance in Australia, it's, you know, an okay result. I think we, we need to move past that. I don't think those days are coming back. I, I don't, you know, news poll sort of one election after another pretty much for quite a long time, absolutely nailed it. And uh, I, I think that that represented a, a, an age in which polling was easier to do. And we have to regard polling as a, as a less precise in, instrument than we used to. One of the two-party preferred stat that I'm really looking forward to calculating that I haven't had a chance to yet, it's, this, it's a post that I did actually on election day uh, where I, I calculated looking at the past election results, what was the range of swing that would have produced a hung parliament, basically? What was the two-party preferred range that if you went one way or the other, 
uh, would have produced a hung parliament. And one of the things I've seen is that as the crossbench has gotten bigger, that like hung parliament zone has gotten bigger too. So in 2019, a shift between 0.6% and 3.9% off what the actual two-party preferred figure was um, would have resulted in a hung parliament in 2019. I'm assuming that range will be huge this time um, and Labor managed to kind of escape it just narrowly. But it does mean if this crossbench stays this large in future elections, there'll be a very wide range of outcomes that would probably produce a hung parliament. Maybe it won't stay this large, but hung parliament odds will have gone up even though they didn't happen this time. Yeah, I think my rule of thumb will be if you're not outside the 52-48 range on two-party preferred, then more likely or not we're looking at a hung parliament. Uh, as you say, Labor sort of escaped it by two seats on this occasion, being a fraction shy of 52-48. But, you know, if, if the polls are saying 52-48, I think my reading will be is, is that we've got about a 50% chance of a hung parliament. And if it's any less than that, then that's looking to be the most likely result, you know, with, with all due regard to the the fact that we shouldn't regard polling as quite that precise. But, yes, as you say, you know, I... Back in the day, I, I think you wouldn't you would have thought unless it was fifty fifty, then you know that 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 would be the scenario in which we're looking at hung parliament. Those numbers you just cited suggested that the range in which a hung parliament happens. I think you said what were the numbers zero point something to three point nine. That was in two thousand and nineteen. Okay, so I mean we, that that tells you that there's a band of I think two point something percent in which the there, there's a there's a hung parliament zone on the two party preferred vote. Yeah, last time it was three three point two three point three something like that was the range. Yeah, the the range of two party preferred that would produce a hung parliament between the swing that would lose the coalition a majority and the swing that would gain Labor a majority. Yeah, about three percent. Yeah, and you know this time uh, I, I suppose it's going to be about four percent. But as you say, time will tell. For all sorts of reasons, I'll be fascinated to see that the the two-party preferred counts that we don't have in those non-classic seats, there are so many of them. And uh, it it will give us a clear sense of what Teal independent preferences are doing in terms of how many of them are going to Labor and how many of them going to Liberal. Based on my analysis of Warringah and Wentworth in 2019, I think there are at least two-thirds going to Labor. Uh, and it's on that basis that, you know, I'm producing my estimate, which clearly Anthony Grant concurs with, that that's what I'm doing in the TLC. seats. So I think I'm giving Labor something like 70% of their preferences. And that is one of the things that is helping me get to nearly 52.48 off Labor's historically low primary vote of 32.6. Which probably brings me to what I think is one of the last points I want to cover in this podcast is I've been banging on a bit about the major party vote and proportional representation. And I'm not going to get on my high horse here about advocating for PR, but I do think it's an issue that will probably be something we talk about more, which is that as that vote goes down and as the major parties stubbornly keep winning majorities, um, there's going to be more talk about this. There's going to be more races that are kind of more unpredictable. Um, And I think you could see more volatility. Like I think it's interesting that there were certain local areas where the Teals in one case and the Greens in another actually swept the board and just won all the seats, you know. Like inner city Brisbane is basically all Greens now. 
depends how you define in a city Brisbane, but that sort of area is all greens. The North Shore of Sydney, there's four electorates there where the Teals won three of them and they came pretty close in the fourth one. If that was a proportional voting system, the Greens and the Teals wouldn't have done as well in those areas. I think it does indicate you could see volatility where, you know, we've we've traditionally had a reasonably predictable, stable voting system where you don't get really lopsided results. But, you know, someone can, particularly with preferential voting and low primary votes for everyone, you could see situations where someone wins off a low primary vote and does it again and again and again and again in a bunch of seats and you get quite disproportionate results. And uh, I don't think this issue is going to go away. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's invariably the loser of the election that suddenly discovers a zeal for electoral reform. To the extent that I've heard people sort of saying that this you know, result isn't right and we need to change the electoral system, it's coming from the political right and it has been advocacy for first past the post or perhaps optional preferential voting. Now, first past the post is a, is a horrific non-solution to this problem. Um, optional preferential voting is a lot easier to justify. And uh, I, I, I doubt that anything is going to come of this, but uh, I, I think we're going to hear a lot of clamour, at least for optional preferential voting from the right, because there is that sense that the Teals were able to win because they had preferences locked in from Labor and the Greens, and they, by rights, as Peter Credlin would say, shouldn't have been getting those votes. They didn't properly belong to them. The, it's not fair that the Liberals were losing so many seats that they were led on the primary vote. Whereas I think it would be quite a bit more visionary of them to embrace proportional representation. I'm perhaps uh, more ready to get on my high horse in this regard than you are. Sure, go for it. I think that uh, the single member system, uh, you know, when you don't have a two-party system is, is enormously problematic. And we're entering the world where we're not there anymore. I don't think that this is where there's any chance at all of this happening in my lifetime. You know, I think Australia's political culture is baked into the single member constituency system. But I think that's a shame. I, I, I think we'd all be better off if we had a European style model now that people simply aren't voting for the for, for two major parties anymore. And uh, but, you know, that's not the world we live in. You know, you, I. I I'm glad that we have an element of proportional representation in the Senate. I think that's probably a reasonable compromise that a government will have to negotiate with a proportionally represented Senate. But we are increasingly going to see this sort of bleating about legitimacy issues by governments that are getting elected off 32 to 33% of the vote. And uh, there's something in that. Look, you're probably right. I don't think any any reforms are going to happen soon, but I think... uh... I, these things can happen quite quickly and quite suddenly if the moment is right and the political environment changes. So I'm going to keep talking about it and maybe that opportunity will come up at some point. One point that I would make, though, the only, this is a fun little factoid, I, the only country that has ever moved from a single member to a proportional representation system or vice versa is New Zealand. It may have been limited to parliamentary systems. That is the only time in history that that has occurred. Is there a, an, an antipodean tendency for this this to be breached, or is you know New Zealand an exception that proves a rule? I, I, I tend to think, as I say, that that Australia's political culture is 
does won't be accepting of proportional representation and you know people will point at Tasmania and say that this is a you know disastrous state of affairs that they have there and it's the last thing in the world we want but as you say you know you, you, you can never predict the future so we'll see what happens but I would be very surprised if we break out of that straitjacket. What does the path to victory look like for the coalition 2025? I've done a blog post on this topic but they're kind of really dismissive about these winning back these inner city teal seats. Um, they lost about six of them to independents, a couple more to the Greens, a couple to Labor, depending on which seats you count. Um, it's really hard to see what the path to victory looks like otherwise. What do you think? It would have to be, I think, a repeat of 2013, where you know it follows a period of a pretty disastrous three years for Labor. And, you know, there, there just needs to be a major paradigm shift for them to sort of win the seats that they'd need to win to get a majority. You know, sort of referring to 2013, you know, it, it, it you just never know. You know, it could be that somehow the Teals are going to end up looking discredited, that in the sort of the same way that Oakshot and Windsor were, even though they're not in the same situation. Like in 2013, Bob Catter didn't do well. You know, it, it could be that, you know, things end up looking so disastrous that there's a sort of a flight to certainty and, you know, people are willing to stomach a sort of Tony Abbott-style figure because they're offering sort of strength and certainty after a period of disarray. Uh, it, it, what, whichever way you look at it, I think you are looking at, you know, it, it can only happen if the experience of the Albanese government is completely disastrous. Uh, my feeling is that Labor have learned too many lessons from their last experience in government for that to be likely. They face a lot of challenges. The economic headwinds aren't good for them. Um, who knows what's going to happen in the international strategic environment? So, you know, for weeks and a long time in politics, you know, multiply that by 150. Uh, anything can happen. Uh, but, you know, as you say, the, having been eviscerated in those seats and the the likelihood being that they will be able to win few, if any, of them back, um, uh, it's extremely difficult to see them winning a parliamentary majority at the next election. And, uh, you know, that, that that sort of makes you think, well, maybe a better strategy for them would be to hope to form a minority government and to win the Teals on side. But that doesn't seem to be the course they're plotting out for themselves. You know, it seems to be that they're, they're planning on saying, well, you know, if the Chardonnay sipping privilege classes of the inner cities have rejected us, so be it. We will forge a new coalition out in the suburbs and in the regions. And we'll do that by, you know, redoubling on our embrace of, you know, fair dinkum Aussie values. And that entails an repudiation of what the, the Teals stand for and uh, a, a very limited likelihood that they'd be willing to form a minority government. With them. What I would say, I think there's a couple of points there. One is I do think uh, winning back the Teals could happen, like they could win those seats back. I would not say that they cannot win them back. There's been some talk about, well, when once the Greens win a seat, once an independent wins a seat, it's very hard to win that seat back. But that's often been really small sample sizes. Like 
I, I can't imagine that applies to all three seats the Greens have won in in Brisbane, even if maybe it applies to one or two. Like part of it is that an independent or a sitting Greens MP out there on their own can concentrate their resources and build up their presence and kind of understand their unique position and sort of us against the world and they do well. For a start, wouldn't be a shock if at least one of them had some scandal. I'm not just talking about the Greens, but of all these crossbenchers. Uh, you know, as the number of them grows, the likelihood that one of them is going to stuff up badly increases. Um, and I think also there's a question of resources. Like, it's easier to defend one independent seat, but when there's a whole bunch of these independents, does that uh, kind of make it easier for the Liberals to pick them off, in a sense? So I think probably plenty of them will hang around, but maybe not all of them. It's no guarantee. I just think if the coalition strategy is ignore those seats and just win other seats elsewhere to make up for it, I don't think there's enough of those other seats for them to win. For a start, there's at least three kind of multicultural middle suburbs that they lost, plus Parramatta that they probably should have won that they lost, uh, where the Chinese-Australian vote swung really hard to Labor. I don't think anything they're doing right now will help them win those seats back. Um, so it's actually like that's that's 14 seats, not 10. Um, like there's just not that many even close to marginal Labor seats in outer suburbia to make up the numbers. You know, it would require quite a revolutionary transformation that Morrison, you know, Morrison wasn't in a particularly good position to try that strategy this time. You know, he was unpopular, he was in government, um, but they tried it a bit and they basically got no returns for it, right? Like the only seat where they came close to picking up was Gilmore and that really wasn't, this, this strategy didn't really come into play there. I can think of a lot of examples, you know, where independents didn't entrench themselves. Like, you know, Karen Phelps didn't get re-elected. Uh, independents won, ex-liberal independents won two seats in Western Australia at the federal election in 1996, didn't get re-elected in 1998. I can think of a lot of independents around the place at state level who lost their seats. And, uh, you know, a Western Australian example, uh, Janet Woolard, who was, uh, you'd call her a teal independent. You know, she won a Liberal seat. She was was initially elected as Liberals for Forests. After a rather awkward term, you know, she got re-elected a few times, uh, not in a hugely convincing fashion. She didn't, you know, go onwards and upwards. And when she lost, she lost very badly. And, uh, you know, Ted Mack got re-elected the second time, but not by a huge margin. It's largely a phenomenon of the country where, you know, you get a independent in there who, you know, National Party voters are happy to vote for. And, you know, the, the, the National Party just recognise that, you know, that they have to live with this person. And, you know, you end up with a Bob Cadillac figure who seems to be more or less invincible. Examples like that are harder to find in the cities. On the other hand, you've got Andrew Wilkie. But I, I guess, you know, the moral of the story is that every situation is different. But, you know, the, the independents aren't invincible. And, you know, as you say, it's probably a heroic call for any Liberals to sort of say that, you know, we need to into the Fox News era here and, you know, cut loose the inner cities. And as you say, the majority just doesn't seem to be there. Another thing that made me think of about the Teals is what makes a political party? Like what makes you a political party? We've all become very focused, I think, on the concept of a political party as being like a registered organisation that puts its label on a ballot paper. Um, Indeed, I've had a lot of really silly arguments with people about the idea that you can't compare the whole coalition to Labor because they're different political parties. And I'm like, in in almost every way, they're basically one party. Um, But 
there there does appear to be a bit of a trend here that these teals the the swings towards them kind of look like voters are treating them like a unit right like i can't imagine a voter isn't that the their opinion of zoe daniel doesn't have an impact on their opinion of monique ryan you know those two people may never have met each other but um I think there is a sense in which they were being considered as a as a package deal by voters, um, and that will become even more so once they're in parliament. You know, like they'll need to divvy up who gets to ask questions in question time. There's a lot of legislation to deal with. Are you telling me that they're not going to um, cooperate on that stuff and get you know one of them to focus on reading a bill and working out what amendments they need to make and all that kind of stuff? Like, there's a lot of that work that happens in parliament that I think will push them to act a bit like a party even if they go to the next election and say we're all independents you know and um in a sense i think if you're a voter and you look at this big group of independents who all look a bit like each other the differences between them will blur and you will kind of judge them as a group even if they all say they're independent so i i think that may change the dynamic compared to someone like a bob catter who very much stands alone yeah, I mean, that's true. You know, I, I think it will be in their interests to, you know, have a few little disputes with each other and, you know, not land on the same side of every of every issue. So that, you know, I, I think it may be a bit of a danger for them to the extent that they're going to end up looking like a political party for the reasons you say, you know, any problem that one of them has will infect the others. I think if they... Uh, plot their course wisely, you know, they'll be able to say to the public, look, while in a sense we are part of the same phenomenon, you are voting for an independent. You're not voting for someone who's towing the party line. You're voting for someone who's going to exercise their own conscience and is going to prioritise the specific interests of your electorate. I think that cleverly handled, they can have their cake and eat it too in that regard, but time will tell. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, William, for joining me. Great pleasure. So this is the last episode that I'm doing on the Australian federal election. I'm going to be back in a few weeks with a special episode about the Papua New Guinea election, which is coming up soon. And then we're going to take a bit of a break, get ready for the Victorian election, New South Wales election, lots of stuff to come up. But um, I will be busily working away in the background, as I'm sure William will be, even if uh, we're a little bit quieter on the front end. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>